Welcome to the Relentless Gardener podcast. Good day, everyone. I am Colorado State University Extension Area Specialist in Horticulture, Linda Langelo, and joining me today is Kareem Garby, Extension Agent Horticulture from Denver County. Now let's get, get to the heart of it, where we explore the horticulture topic of conservation biocontrol. Hello, Kareem. How are you doing today? I'm good, Linda. How are you? Good, good. Glad you could join me. So explain to the audience, what is bio conservation biocontrol? Because to me, it sounds like you're almost tuning into the local habitat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so before I, I want to explain conservation biocontrol, but just basically what is biocontrol in general. Um, so this is the practice of using one organism to control another organism. We've been doing it as humans for a very long time um, before we even had a name for it. So for example, I would say that when we domesticated cats for the control of rats, that was the first instance of biocontrol. Um, nowadays, we're not really using vertebrates like cats or anything like that anymore. We're more so just using um, insects. So nowadays, uh, we often we're breeding massive numbers of either parasitic wasps or um, some kind of other uh, parasitoid or generalist predator that is going to control some kind of you know arthropod pest in our fields. Um, conservation biocontrol refers to more so modifying the landscape to encourage these beneficial insects to kind of come back in and provide the services that they already are doing in nature. We just need to basically make our system more like nature um, so that they basically we just bring back what we already had before, before we disturbed it. So is this really getting a good foothold in agriculture? I would say yes, definitely this is a this is a practice that is used by a lot of commercial growing operations. Um, they use conservation biocontrol in addition to the other types of biocontrol. So let me just run through them real quick. Um, so conservation biocontrol, we're kind of, we're, like I said, we're manipulating the landscape. We're bringing back in the arthropods. Alternatively, um, a lot of biocontrol is done by just rearing massive numbers, sometimes billions to trillions number of these little tiny arthropods in some facility and then releasing them periodically into the system. Um, so we call that classical biological control. And there's two types of that within subsets of classical biocontrol, there is inundative and inoculative. So inundative is where, as per the name, we're just kind of inundating the system. We're flooding the system with these agents at multiple times throughout the season. We have to do that all, all, a lot of times because a lot of these, like for example, parasitic wasps, they are so small and they have such a small area of dispersal that we cannot really achieve, you know, significant population levels that are going to get control with just a single release. So we have to release, keep releasing them. And then there's inoculative where we're releasing a large number of these wasps, typically at the beginning of the season in the hopes that they're going to kind of, we're basically inoculating the system. We're going to hope that these wasps are going to kind of take, establish, they're going to grow the population for the duration of that season and then provide control. Maybe in the winter, they're going to die off and then we'll do the same thing next year. How about augmentative versus conservation biocontrol? Yeah, augmentative biocontrol we're not another way of we're basically we're manipulating the system. So um, I don't know if it's the same, but I know like uh, manipulative biological control is where let's say you have like a rice paddy and you have, you know, one pond that has a lot of predaceous, like let's say mosquito fish are prevalent in that pond. One doesn't, we basically would bridge, would create like we, we would connect those two ponds to allow um, 
the whatever agent it is, whether it's predaceous fish. I know, and also in, in rice farming, they use tadpole shrimp a lot. Um, yeah, we're basically allowing the facilitating the movement of these agents from one area to the next. So, what are all the merits of biocontrol, or the downsides, or, or if you will, pros versus cons? Mm -hmm. Definitely, when done right, there's a lot of pros, and when done wrong, there's a lot of cons. So. Um, before I talk about the pros, I want to refer, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the pyramid of IPM, but it's basically, IPM stands for integrated pest management, and it's all the different ways in which we, the methods we use to control whatever pest we're dealing with. It could be, a, it could be an insect, it can be a fungus. Um, and the, the, at the bottom of the pyramid, you have things like cultural control, more like preventative measures. And then once you get to the top, you're not really preventing a problem anymore. You're just responding to it. We have chemical control at the very top biocontrol is second at the top and then also physical physical control um and so these different methods they vary with regards to their risk and labor so things towards the top of the pyramid are going to involve much more labor and risk things towards the bottom not as much um, and so biological control it is towards the top of the pyramid so it does involve a greater amount of risk and labor than let's say you know preventative measures but compared to chemical control it definitely is going to have much less uh, human health risk and like I said, when done right, there's going to be much less of an environmental risk. So I think it's a great way of reducing our reliance on insecticides. Think of it as like a living insecticide. Um, but like I said, it's when done right. So I want to point your attention to some historical failures in biocontrol. So Hawaii, this the archipelago of Hawaii is a, is a special example because they have more invasive species per capita than anywhere in the world. And a lot of those invasive species are uh, biocontrol agents that were released you know, probably without the proper uh, screening. Um, one example is the small Indian mongoose, which was released by farmers in the 18th century to control, I think, rodents and other small pests. The problem is these guys were farmers. They were really doing their due diligence and the mongoose is active during the day and the things they're supposed to be hunting are active at night. So there was no overlap between the two. Another example is the cane toad, which is almost a cosmopolitan species. I know there are a problem in Hawaii and in Australia, and they were released to help with the sugar growing industry. There was a beetle called the gray-backed cane beetle attacking the sugar crop. So they released the cane toad to control that um, insect. But, you know, that's why we don't use vertebrates anymore. Things with the backbone, like, like mammals or, or reptiles, because they're very generalist. So this cane toad, maybe it ate some of the beetles, but it was also eating, uh, in Hawaii at least, a lot of the native snails. It's, you know, it's attacked along with some other invasive species. Um, the cane toad has driven some of the endemic Hawaiian snails to either extinction, either they're functionally extinct or they're at the very least endangered. Um, so that's, you know, one, one risk is the non-target impact. And also, don't get me wrong, some of the arthropods that we have, insects, can also have non-target impacts. But typically, we're doing in the lab what we call um, host specificity testing. So we'll take the agent that we're proposed to release and we'll expose it to, let's say, several, um, you know, the insect that we're trying to control and then several native non-target insects. And we're going to see, is it going to attack those native non-target insects? If it is, we're not going to release it. And I'm getting a little into the weeds now, but just to get, I just want people to understand, at least in Hawaii, how rigorous some of this testing is. Um, with the parasitic wasps, they have the, there's this phenomena where if a parasitic wasp is exposed to a host that it doesn't really want to use, but it doesn't have any host that it does want, you know, it, 
it'll this is it'll use it even though it doesn't have the um it's not the right host for it we call this a factitious host so in these lab testing oftentimes we'll generate false positives for some of these potentially very useful agents because they used a host that they probably wouldn't have normally but they had no other option um but just the fact that it used that, that non-target host means that you know we are so committed to preserving the um the safety of the environment that we're not going to release it even if there's a, a tiny tiny chance that it's going to attack non-target species. Um, so that's actually, you know, people who work in broad control in Hawaii, they look at it as a double-edged sword because we potentially exclude a lot of probably very useful agents. And in the meantime, while, you know, we're still testing all these agents, the invasive species is doing damage in the meantime. So, um, you know, there's, there's some debate within the field about that. And then the last two uh, downsides of uh, biological, concert, I mean, sorry, yeah, bio control in general that I want to mention are the cost. Usually, you know, when we're releasing rearing these these insects for mass release where we, we have these massive facilities we have lots of staff that need to be on hand for this there's lots of containment protocol because they could be you know we don't want them getting out into the wild so it's, it can be very expensive and then like i touched on with the um, inoculative and inundative biocontrol sometimes these agents are not going to establish we need to be constantly releasing them so that's also going to add to our cost the last thing i'll say about this is these cons do not apply to conservation biocontrol this is more so the biocontrol that the farmers are doing when they're mass releasing those captively reared insects. It sounds to me like just dealing with that biocontrol that it, that can take years to figure out if something's going to be right or not. Oh yes, I think I know. I I just know a lot of examples in Hawaii because I just saw my masters there. Um, but yeah, it can take like you know sometimes maybe even like seven, 10 years before you can release one of these agents, specifically Hawaii, specifically because they have had so many bad experiences with biocontrol. And so the public is very apprehensive. Um, but yeah, it's like you said, it can take a very long time. And in the meantime, your invasive pest is doing all this damage. It's probably being controlled with chemical insecticides. So it's just, yeah, this is why I, I think biocontrol is a very, is a, um, like I said, when it's done right, it can be a great way of controlling these insects because we can achieve you know, immediate control, we can reduce our reliance on insecticides and everyone's happy, except the pest. Well, great, great example in Hawaii because Hawaii is already losing a lot of its native plants. So uh, Hawaii doesn't need anything else to go wrong. It needs mm -hmm. something to really build its uh, natural environment back again. Yeah. And if I may add um, just another, I've given you some, some examples of some failures. Hawaii has one of the best success stories of biocontrol. Um, so they have the only, I think it's the only Hawaiian native deciduous tree because, you know, most of the trees are there are evergreen. Um, it's called the willy willy tree. And it was being attacked by this terrible parasitic wasp, a gall wasp that basically attacks it. It lays its eggs on the trees, causes them to form these abnormal chambers. And, you know, the trees would just drop all of their leaves and, and they, you know, they were, this tree was driven to nearly the point of extinction. Um, and then they introduced a, a, I would call it a hyperparasitoid. It's a wasp that lays its eggs in the eggs of that plant parasite. Um, and, you know, it's it, it, within, within the, the scientific community there, they can like unilaterally agree that the restoration of this tree is due to this one wasp, like the willy willy, willy, willy tree was on the brink of extinction and because they introduced this wasp that controlled that other wasp, now it's um, it's not a common tree anymore. I mean, it's it's still very rare, but um, the few that are you know that are alive are are doing much better off. Well, that's great to hear. That's that's wonderful. 
So let's talk about some other insects that are part of biocontrol. Definitely. There's a lot. Um, so we have the, I would group them into two groups, mainly the generalists and the specialists. So the generalists are a lot of things probably a lot of people here in Colorado are very familiar with. So like ladybird beetles, both the larvae and adults are voracious predators. They're not picky. They eat a lot of aphids. They'll eat any small insect they can find. They may, may even eat each other. Lady Ladybird beetles, a lot of insects is the trend. Whenever they freshly molted, they're very soft, like a soft shell crab. And so their friends will have no qualms if they're hungry. Um, uh, a lot of social wasps, like paper wasps, are generalists. And I they're really cool, actually, because um, they're, the larvae are very, I would say metal is the right word I'm looking for. When the larvae are hungry, they will actually scrape on the sides of their comb with their mandibles to signal to their sisters, I'm hungry, feed me. Um, so it's just kind of a very, um, I don't know, it's something out of a horror movie. Uh, and then, you know, the, their sisters will go and grab them, whatever they can find, and turn them into meatballs and then feed them. It's fascinating. Um, another really big group are the ground beetles. So these are, they're beetles. They have wings, but they don't really fly. You often see them just scurrying across the ground. Um, these are also known as the carabids or some, there's one group within them called the tiger beetles, which they run so fast that the military is actually studying them to see like, how do they process the visual information? Because they're running so fast, they can't even really take it all in. They have to like run, stop, think, and then keep moving. <laughs> um, but they are great predators of snails. Um, I always tell when I talk to kids about these beetles is that they'll find a snail and then they basically with a shell, they'll kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They'll spit out digestive enzymes into the shell and turn the, sh the snail into a nice little bowl of soup with the shell serving as the bowl. Um, great imagery for you, you all at 9 a.m. having your breakfast. Um, there's still more, there's more groups to talk about just because there are so many insects. You can tell I love talking about bugs, but there's a lot of them. Um, not insects, spiders. Spiders are great generalist predators. Um, I think these have even been, uh, they're, they're looking at releasing them as biocontrol agents in parts of Southeast Asia, the social spiders. And they're thinking of releasing them like inside people's houses to control certain things. I don't know how how much that's going to fly here in the US. We're typically much more um, squeamish. But yeah, spiders are great generalist predators. They're not picky. They'll eat whatever. And the last group of generalist predators I want to talk about um, before I get into the specialists are hoverflies. So a lot of you have probably encountered these before and you may have have mistaken them for a bee. That's not by mistake, that's by design. The these hoverflies, they specifically they have coloration that mimics a bee for protection. You know, no, you don't want to mess with it if it's gonna maybe sting you. And not only do they mimic the coloration of the bee, they even mimic the stinging behavior. If you if one of these lands on you, it'll actually press its abdomen into you um, as if it's stinging you, even though it, you know, nothing's gonna happen. But it's just amazing how they even mimic that behavior. Um so anyways, enough about their appearance. They're great in the garden because as larvae, they are voracious predators of aphids. There's even some genera that are called the aphid eaters. And they're kind of cool because the way they eat is they don't really, you know, they don't really chew like you see a lot of the wasps and such. They just kind of put the whole aphid in their mouth and just kind of like suck its insides out. It's it's pretty gruesome to watch. Like, you know, I, I've, it's almost something out of a horror movie too. You know, these, these larvae are much larger than the aphid and you'll just see them rearing their head with the aphid kind of sticking its head out, looking really sad um, of the uh, uh, hoverfly larva's mouth. And hoverfly larva, hoverflies are doubly beneficial because one, in their larval stage, they're predators. And in their adult stage, they're just simple nectar feeders and they're pollinating your plants while they're going around. Um, so, and, and last thing about them, I know I keep saying last thing, but 
I like them especially because I don't know if this is in the literature, but I have seen them on plants that are infested with aphids and ants. You know how the ants will defend their their um their their livestock. They leave the hoverfly larva alone for some reason. I don't know what it is, um, but yeah, they're just they're fascinating. Whenever I see them, I just have to whip out my camera and get a picture. Um, anyways. Now for the specialists, and thank you for letting me talk so long because I love to talk about bugs. <laughs> oh, oh, sure, I love your your descriptions. <laughs> My monologue, yeah, and so, oh yeah, and it's gonna get even cooler now because the parasitic wasps are by far my favorite group of all insects. You know, people often ask me like, it might be someone asks you guys, what's your favorite plant? It may be very hard to answer for me. I know what my favorite insect is. It's the parasitic wasp. So parasitic wasp specifically, the superfamily, the Ichneumoidea which contains the ichneumonids and the braconids. Um, so these are parasitic wasps that, you know, they they inject their eggs into their host. Sometimes they'll inject it and then leave. Sometimes they will catch the, the you know, paralyze the insect and then drag it away to a secondary location where it can gestate safely. The eggs can gestate safely. The cool thing about them is, is besides that, all that stuff, is that they have co-evolved with a virus called a PVD, polydenovirus. And this virus, it matures in the or replicates inside the wasp's oviduct in specialized cells it only attacks the cells that it's been designated it doesn't attack the the wasp mother cells it doesn't attack the wasp's egg cells and when she injects her she when she finds a host insect host she'll inject her eggs into the host maybe one egg um, along with her venom to paralyze the insect and she'll also inject the virus and the cool thing is that we have found, you know, doing studies that if you have, let's say, a ho insect host that has an immune system, it can fight off, you know, pathogens and sometimes parasites. So if you inject just the wasp egg, the host insect immune system can fight it off. It'll basically encapsulate or melanize it. Basically, we, it surrounds it to stop it from wreaking havoc. And if you inject just the virus, then the uh, insect host immune system can also fight it off. But it's only when you inject the virus and the the wasp egg, the wasp larva, when they're attacking the host simultaneously, its immune system becomes overwhelmed and it can't fight them off. And then it obviously it dies to our um, to our benefit, thankfully, because you know some of these insects are really big pests. But it's just such an such an interesting uh, coevolution. You know, I'm always fascinating. How does this virus know not to attack its wasp ally, but it knows to attack the insect cells of uh, the insect host cells? Like it's there's got to be some very intricate chemical biochemical differentiation going on there. That's I'm sure someone's researched it, but it's just, you know, I'm, I'm interested more in like the macro, the macro, um, the behaviors and stuff, but yeah. Fascinating. Um, well, it's, it's things that, you know, when you get down to the specifics that we'd really like to know, like you're saying, because there's something in that, that further down the road may help us. You're exactly right. Like, I'm wondering now that you said that, what if we could, you know, mass rear this virus by itself and then release it? Um, actually, you know, after this, I'm going to go do a literature review because I'm curious about, like, someone's got to have had that idea already, I'm sure. Well, uh -huh. you you don't know this story, but uh, those moths, uh, uh, not moths, those uh, those wasps that that you were just talking about, when I was talking with Lisa Mason in a in a previous podcast, I was new in Colorado and I was staying with friends and we were out in the yard and I was sitting on a bench and one landed on my shoulder. Now you can, you can think about uh, when people see the ovipositor, how scary mm -hmm. that would be when you have one of those landing on your shoulder and it sat there 
and I'm going, I have no idea what this is, but I'm going to be very still. And it, it eventually did get up and fly away. And then I went and I looked it up and I was just over the moon. It, it was incredible to have yeah, something like that. It's an amazing organ, the ovipositor. Um, I mean, it sounds like you seem almost like a Disney princess, you know, insects land on you and you, um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, in the ichneumonids, that one family I was mentioning earlier, they have like a crazy long ovipositor, like longer than their whole body. Um, yeah, it, it, everything, I mean, I know I, I should stop being so excited about things that sound like they're coming out of a horror movie, but it's crazy. <laughs> It's your passion. It's your passion. Like plants are my passion, you know, it's just, Definitely. you know, and, and if you don't know anything about it, you think, oh my gosh, what is this going to do to me? And it just was the calmest, most gentlest insect. And I was just fascinated by it. Mm, yeah. You just reminded me also, by the way, I forgot we need to bring this discussion back to plants. The cool thing about a lot of plants, plant insect interactions is that some plants um, when they are fed on by herbivores, they will release uh, organic compounds, volatile organic compounds into the air, which will actually recruit some of these parasitic wasps and generalist predators. Basically, the plant is saying, I'm getting eaten. Please come help me if you want to come get a snack. And yeah, it's a pretty like, you know, like, I've heard the phrase that, you know, the smell of like freshly cut grass smells to us like, you know, it smells like whatever. But to a lot of parasitic wasps, it smells like a feast. Um, so it's a really cool interaction there. I, um, I I agree with you. I think that's fascinating. I think that, you know, Mother Nature by design has all this already laid out and planned for all these scenarios. And, and we are the ones so far behind in learning this. But this is great. Uh, this is a great field. Exactly. And to what you're saying, you know, just to bring the to talk about conservation biocontrol, you know, like like you said, Mother Nature has already figured everything out. It's been doing it for billions of years. Conservation biocontrol, we're not, you know, it's it's different than, other, like, you know, when I mentioned that pyramid of IPM, um, I mentioned there's, you know, the biological control is its own tier, but conservation biocontrol is really more of a preventative measure because we're really just, we're not really changing, we're not really, you know, adding something to the system. We're just restoring it to what it once was, letting Mother Nature do what she's been doing for a very long time. Um, so, you know, when I mentioned all these risks of biological control, you know, all the non-target impacts, that's really not a, that's not an issue with conservation biocontrol because we're not really introducing a new exotic insect into the system. We're just encouraging the in, in existing insects to do their job. So. Oh, well, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, when you talk about IPM, there are a lot of clients that, you know, they, they see an insect and the numbers aren't high enough to where it's a dangerous level for the plant and they they want something to cure it immediately and usually you know there's there's already uh, a beneficial somewhere moving in at at that level and so we try to encourage you know if you're going to use an insecticide, it's probably going to kill the beneficial as well. Mm -hmm. So exactly, we try to get them to think in that way and give them other opportunities as well. Definitely. I, 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 I love when people are, you know, using biocontrol to reduce their reliance on insecticides because yeah, insecticides, you know, I did my whole master's on them. I, they're not good. I mean, some, there are some, there are some good ones and, you know, and, and obviously, Insecticides, you know, I'm not condoning every use of them, but there are instances where 
you know, you need to use insecticides, but always as part of a broader IPM program. You know, you're not doing just insecticides, you're doing insecticides and cultural control, preventative treatments, et cetera. Um, the last two, before we move on to the next part of the discussion, the last two or last three, I guess, uh, agents that we're going to be using in biological control. And this is, again, more so actually the parasitic flies, just like the parasitic wasps, are also being used. Um, they, you know, they can be part of conservation biocontrol. Like the tachinid flies um, are pretty common. They're like the wasp. They lay their eggs. They leave the wasp. The egg will usually like burrow into them. Um, there's some. If we had more time, I could talk a lot about you know the all the different strategies they use. Like there's one that's used to control fire ants that is called the decapitating fly because once it pops out, it'll cause the ants head to pop off. Um, but yeah, so like the, the parasitic flies are very interesting. There's also entomopathogenic fungi and entomopathogenic nematodes. I know it's a mouthful, um, but at least the fungi are pretty relevant here in Colorado because you know we have a lot of problems with grasshoppers as pests. Um, and there's one species of, of entomopathogenic fungi called Nosema locuste, which is very specific to uh, orthopterans, grasshoppers, crickets, and katydids. So you re you release that 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 microsporidian fungi, it's going to only attack. The grasshopper. So you can actually reduce some of the non-target impacts. And then the last group are the predatory mites, which uh, I call them, they are, I put them in the specialist group, but they are somewhat generalist, but you're going to use them to control a very specific type of pest, ones that are very small. So if you're dealing with like spider mites or maybe lace bugs, thrips, you release predatory mites to control them. Um, but that's basically the whole roster of all the agents that we could potentially be using. That's fascinating. And, you know, I hope that this year, the season coming up, we don't have a lot of grasshoppers because of the colder temperatures that we had. We had an entomologist uh, in the Eastern Plains and he discussed with us one time a few years ago when we were just being ravaged by these in high numbers. And he said that it would take several weeks of temperatures in sort of the mid to low 20s to really, you know, kind of kill some of them off. And wow. we've had it so dry for so long that we've mm -hmm. had greater numbers, you know, that are very cyclical coming and going. But hopefully with these colder temperatures, that Arctic blast and and the mm. snow, and it's not getting uh, that far above freezing. Hopefully, that will make a big difference. Yeah, I hope so. Because yeah, I've heard some. I've seen the ask extension questions about them. People are just being ravaged by grasshoppers. So I share your sentiment, definitely. Yeah. So so how specifically can a homeowner do conservation biocontrol? It's a good question. Um, one thing is they may already be doing it without even knowing it. Um, so for example, some ways that we can do conservation biocontrol is by planting flowering areas, which I'm sure a lot of homeowners already have. Those flowering areas, you know, flowers, a lot of these parasitic wasps, flies, and even the beetles, they come to feed on the nectar and the pollen. You know, pollen is a good source of protein. The nectar is a good source of carbs. Um, and I know the parasitic wasps specifically, they'll come to get some nectar for themselves. And while they're there in your garden, they're going to patrol and look for some hosts for their babies. Um, I like to plant, you know, I'm coming, I just moved here from Virginia. I love planting things like dill and, and fennel that have like a big umbel flower, like the big, you know, flat flowers, anything you have here to, or I think sulfur flowers has an umbel type flower. Um, 
but yeah, it serves it, to me. It's like almost like a little mini helo pad. You know, this big wasp has a nice place to land, and then he goes and looks for you know maybe some big juicy caterpillar. Um, so yeah, they're probably already doing that by having those flowering areas, or even you know if you have like a decaying tree, like a snag, dead tree, some rotting logs, leave them be. Um, you know the these decaying trees, this organic matter is habitat to a whole new set of organisms in death that are different than what it was in life. Um, so a lot of parasitic wasps will use them. And then also, you know, they'll probably, they'll use the tree to maybe store some of the insects that they have paralyzed. Uh, maybe it's a habitat for a lot of these, these predaceous beetles. Um, also leaf litter is a great source of habitat for untold arthropods besides just the, uh, you know, these outright predaceous ones, like the predaceous beetles, spiders, the wasps. Um, it'll probably also provide habitat for some smaller, more unsung heroes of the ecosystem, like let's say springtails, which are great at eating, um, you know, fungus and detritus. So maybe it's going to reduce the amount of fungus attacking growing in your in your garden. Um, some things that you know maybe you're not already doing that you know you could actively plant is uh, like bunch grasses, like ornamental fescue grasses that have a very dense uh, growth point, because a lot of spiders and those predaceous beetles they love to overwinter in those habitats. Actually. In commercial agriculture, we have things called beetle banks, little mounded furrows of those grasses that you know farmers will intentionally put in to serve as habitat for those beetles and spiders. Um, a couple other things to plant are any plant with like a, a hollow pithy stem. Um, this is going to serve as habitat for a lot of the solitary wasps and even a lot of the solitary bees that are just pollinators. Um, they like to. I know that the pollinators like to overwinter in those little hollow pithy stems. And some of the parasitic wasps may store their cache in there. I say cache, I'm referring to those paralyzed insects. Um, hedgerows are another one. Hedgerows are also serve as overwintering habitat for a lot of uh, parasitic wasps and, and pollinators. I think farmers usually actually, it was a matter of course to include them for that very reason. That's why I think uh, you'll see a lot of hedgerows in a lot of old farmland. Um, and the last two things I'm going to touch on is uh, having brush piles or areas of thatch or patches of bare undisturbed soil um some ground nesting bees like to just like to nest in the soil underground and they will like they actually have a very interesting um nesting structure they'll they basically they'll lay an egg provision with pollen and, and nectar cap it another egg pollen nectar so you have this little tube and there's a bunch of little subsections of um their babies um and yeah brush piles and thatch also serve as habitat and even though it may look kind of messy it'll be habitat for a whole slew of beneficial arthropods. And then the last one I'm going to talk about are uh, rock walls. So this can be a nice aesthetic feature to a lot of gardens. And it's also another place that a lot of parasitic wasps like to store their, their paralyzed insects. In Hawaii, at least, we have a fascinating parasitic wasp called a jewel wasp. And it goes after those big American cockroaches. Um, and it's, it's a pretty interesting strategy because, you know, with parasitic wasps, usually... The wasp is um, sometimes it's much bigger than the insect, so it's easier for it to deal with it. But for this for this jewel wasp and the American cockroach, the wasp is much smaller than the roach. And so how it deals with it is it finds the roach and since it can't just you know pick it up and carry it somewhere else, it'll sting it like on its brainstem to kind of turn it into a zombie. Um, and then it'll you know once this, this roach is zombified, it'll grab it by the antenna and like lead it like a leash to the burrow where it's going to you know, give it a very um, undesirable demise. But it's just, yeah, like I said, if I, I could I could go on for an hour about all the different strategies that they have. There's so many different, like, you know, cases of success. Um, like, actually, the I, I know I keep saying last thing, but 
it's really amazing is the first case of biocontrol, not conservation biocontrol, but just general biocontrol was done in California in the 1800s. Um, we were dealing with this pest called the cottony cushiony scale, which maybe we ha we deal with sometimes here as like a houseplant pest. And so they released two agents to control it. One was the Vidalia beetle, which is a species of ladybird beetle, um, and also a parasitic fly called Cryptochetum. And so the, the ladybird beetle is a generalist predator. The fly is a very, it's a very host specific parasitoid. And the cool thing they found is it's, it's amazing that they had such, such, such success because it was like the first case, there was no knowledge in the field, but they found that the, if a parasitic fly had laid its eggs inside of one of these scales, and then the Vidalia beetle came along, it wouldn't eat that, 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 that cottony cushiony scale. It would have, it would somehow it need to avoid it because it was already taken. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's amazing. These, I, I wonder how does the beetle know? Um, how did these farmers get so lucky? You know, this is like almost 200 years ago. Like it's just, it's fascinating how lucky they got. But anyways, rant over. <laughs> it, it would be interesting to find out if, you know, they had a certain chemical when, when that happens, you know, the, the parasitic, uh, the parasitoid put the a you know in another insect and then another one comes by and knows not to attack it if if there's a chemical that is released or a vibration or if it has a specific uh coloration that you know mm -hmm. it, it has that visual ability to pick up certain uv from it Mm -hmm. you know i really actually I, now i'm like now that you're saying this i really I appreciate having someone as kind of like a sounding board because you're giving me more, more ideas now like i'm thinking it could be that the maybe the beetle has some way of knowing if it's like a suboptimal host like oh it's already being eaten so it's gonna be less nutritious for me so i'm gonna not waste my time um alternatively the systems you're describing are very much in place for a lot of parasitic parasitic wasps you know the difference between generalists and parasitic wasps is that generalists have a very broad search strategy i see it i eat it the parasitic wasps are very they have they do much more um chemical messengery they are picking up on very small amounts of you know whatever molecule in the air and so um they'll know when a, when a host is already taken by another wasp sometimes we have what we call opportunistic hyperparasitism so hyperparasitism means parasite of a parasite and opportunistic means that this wasp you know normally it'll just lay its eggs in the host but if it comes along and its host is already taken, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to waste my egg. I'm going to lay my egg inside that parasite's egg and eat both of them. Um, so yeah, this is just one of the myriad of like so many really, like there's so many different types of like those inter-host parasite interactions. There's multiple parasitism. There's um, super parasitism. If anyone wants to know about more about these, please email me later because I can talk about them for a very long time. But um, yeah, parasitic wasps just have so many, they have a very intricate um, search strategies, I would say. Or or we'll just invite you back on and, and we can just, you know, nail down one specific topic and, and go into that further. Because I love it, that, yeah, just parasitic wasps. This is, you know, a very intricate system, like, mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's already there and that we're unfolding it as we, as we study and and do research in the lab and and here we are and we've got all these new answers which i think is fascinating and i think that if homeowners would 
you know, have the brush piles and uh, leave some of the, the a dead tree or a dead stump and they could have a really, really good little ecosystem. Definitely. I'm sure that they already have, you know, like people always ask me, how do you see these insects? It's because I'm looking for them. If you go into your garden and you look around, sit by a flower, you'll see all sorts of, you know, you'll probably see the honeybees, but maybe you'll see some of these, like, you know, these parasitic wasps, a lot of these parasitoid flies are going to come by um, and they're already visiting your garden. You just need to, you know, give them more habitat. Another tool, if you really want to get into the identification of them, I use this app all the time. It's called iNaturalist. It's basically like a little, you know, you take a picture, the app will suggest, you know, I think it's X, Y, and Z. Um, and also there's a community of people who will help you identify whatever arthropods are visiting your garden. So, you know, take pictures of whatever you see in your garden. Maybe it's a pest, maybe it's a beneficial, you know, this app can help you to determine which one is which. So Thanks. I use it all the time. Thanks for sharing that. That's great for people to know. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Kareem, for joining me today. And a thank you to the audience for listening. Tune in next time with another discussion on a horticultural topic.